Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for tonight. And today, Father, I pray that, Lord, that you will just work in this time that we have together. Thank you, Father, for everyone that's online with us. And I pray that this would be relevant and real and powerful. And uh, God, that you just do some amazing work here in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're so glad you're with us today. We're going to do something really fun. And I know a lot of people wait for these. This is a surprise. Uh, Pastor Dan's going to be doing Q&A today. And we're actually going back to previous Q&As, the questions that we didn't get to. Some of them have come in since then too. So, um, you know, we're putting him right on the spot. I can tell you, I know what these questions are. He does not. So we'll see if we can stump the pastor today. How's that? That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> okay. We'll just start. These are in no specific order. So the first one we have here is what have you discovered? This came in in April, actually. What have you discovered through this pandemic that is a blessing to you that you wouldn't have had without COVID? Yeah, that is such a great question. There, there are so many life lessons to be learned in COVID. One is the idea of letting God be God and, and you just responding to whatever it is that you're supposed to respond to, whatever's in front of you. Learning to take one day at a time, learning to take one step at a time, learning the idea of trusting God. My life first is trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do, do not lean to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your steps. And so, honestly, it, uh, it's been a great opportunity to learn how to trust God. Uh, the other thing that I think is amazing is to learn how to pray for people as well. There's been a lot of hurting people, a lot of people that are isolated. And uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity, if you have your eyes open, to reach out and to really serve others. So, uh, so I'm sure you've learned a lot as well. Those are the two things that I, I think that God has captured me with. That's kind of crazy that that question came in in April. We were yeah. just a month in and we're still... Who would have thought? Uh, yeah, who would have thought? It's funny. The next question is, what is your favorite verse during this trying time? You just answered it. Right? I did. I did. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. How would you re respond to someone who says there's no way that God can be good and allow things like COVID to happen? All right, so that, that's, you know, that's the age-old question of how can God allow evil in the world today? So let me see if I can take a stab at that. So I believe that God is so good that he allows us to have choice. And for choice to exist, there has to be legitimate choice. So God has created a system where good and evil are side by side, that good things and bad things happen, and uh, we're put right in the center of that. And the reality is, is that God didn't create us as robots. He wants us to love him out of response to who he is. And so for us to love him, there has to be choice. When I, when I chose my wife 46 years ago, uh, I chose her uh, because she, what I believed to, she was what I believed to be the best person for me. There was choice. I choose to love her, chosen to love her every day since then. And I think that without choice, there really isn't legitimate love. And so this good and evil system that works together is a system that really is important for us and important for God so that we can learn to choose him in the midst of difficult times. So that's also the answer to the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good exactly. people? Exactly, right? yeah, it is. Right, that's, that's good. Okay, this is a good one. Why don't we talk about politics in church? Why don't we talk about politics? Whenever you repeat the question, it's because you don't know the answer. 
<laughs> I'm just kidding. I actually do know the answer. The answer, if you look at our country, we're split right down the center. And you have to understand that Grace Church has a mission in the city and around the world, and that is to win people to Jesus Christ. When you take a political stand, you've just eliminated half of your audience that, that you could win to Christ. Our mission is to introduce people to Jesus. And when you get off of that mission, either to the right or to the left, you, I think, lose the opportunity to have an audience before people. So we choose to be non-political here at Grace because we believe that there's a greater kingdom that supersedes all kingdoms, and that is the kingdom of God, and that's what we focus in on. Okay, that's so relevant right now. You know, it's been interesting to watch the whole political climate, and people take something that's that's good for a good cause, believe one way or another for a godly reason, but then it turns into a, a hate and um, something that's so ungodly. And um, that's another thing that the church is so, it's so important for us to um, go against that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the truth is, is that I have been appalled at how I've, what I've seen, uh, how I've seen people respond one to another in terms of a lack of love, a lack of respect, a lack of honor. And it goes contrary to everything that we learn in Scripture about loving your enemy, about, you know, if your enemy is hungry, you feed them. There's so much Scripture that you can pour on top of this, and you can look at how this country has responded, how Christians have responded to people who oppose them politically, and uh, you can see that their lives don't match up, their words don't match up, at least, with what the Word of God says. Okay, next question. My boyfriend and I love each other very much. This is not my question. This one came in, by the way. My boyfriend and I love each other very much. We are monogamous and committed to each other and have lived together for four years. Does God really care if we have a marriage license? Okay, that's a, that is an honest and powerful question, and God bless you for being monogamous. But I think there's a misunderstanding of what marriage is in our culture. So let's just take a step back and let's ask the question, who designed marriage? And the answer to that question is God did. Who designed relationships? God designed relationships. And so if that's the case, the, the thing that God reveals in Scripture about marriage is that it is a covenant relationship. It is to reflect him and his covenant with his bride, the church. And so when it goes back to what I taught last week when I talked about the fact that you and I have to be willing to be a means. And so let's talk about your marriage for a minute. Let's talk about your human relationship, whatever you call it. So if you are not willing to be a means for the glory of God, then that, 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 there, you have a problem with what God is revealing to you. So the reality is marriage is a covenant relationship. It is not a contract. Every couple that I ever marry uh, I actually, I just perform their, their marriages. I don't marry them all because uh, I'm already married. But, you know, every couple that I marry, I ask them as they come down the aisle, I look them in the eyes and I ask them this question, do you understand the seriousness of the covenant you are about to enter into? Marriage is a covenant, and that covenant reflects the glory of God. The covenant reflects Christ's commitment to his church. That's why it's so important to God that a husband and wife enter into this covenant relationship then there's a second factor and that is the bible teaches us to obey every ordinance of man for the lord's sake 
So with those two thoughts in mind, I believe that marriage is God's design and he has a way and a will for it. That's good. How do you comfort someone who has a loved one die and that loved one didn't know Jesus? You know, that's a difficult question. You know, I, I think the only thing that you can say is that you never know. You never know what at the last moment, at the last breath, what a person believes or what they've done. Uh, oftentimes, I've had the opportunity to be with people on their deathbed and I, people who have been hardened atheists, I've watched come to Jesus. So you never know. You never know what they, what they breathe out at the last moment. So I say that to say, I would never take any hope away from anybody. I think you just have to let God be God and you're, you know, you just, you know, you mourn correctly and, but the truth is, is you don't know. So grab a hold of that hope and hold on to that hope until, uh, until you know that it's not true. The Bible says that narrow is the gate that leads to heaven. Google says that approximately 107 billion people have walked on the earth at some point in time. How many <laughs> of the 107 billion people who have existed do you expect to see in heaven? Uh, Karen, I'm just going to be surprised to see you. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm just joking with Karen. Uh, you know, the reality is that's something that only God knows. And I, I can't speculate. I can tell you this, that he that does the will of the Father is the one that genuinely has salvation. And the truth is, is not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So I believe that, that uh, your lifestyle, your words, you reflect what you believe. And, and if you have a genuine faith, uh, I think you'll, you'll make it to the other side and it'll be an amazing thing. Uh, but I don't know that we can put, I don't think we can put a number on it or, or how many of that, you know, I would say it's probably narrow, narrower than I think. That would be my answer. I bet an accountant asked that question. It, probably so. Probably so. All right. What's your most embarrassing moment on stage? What is my most embarrassing moment on stage? That is, <laughs> I have many embarrassing moments on stage, uh, but let me tell you about a time that I was off stage that was really, really embarrassing. But it has to do with what being on stage. So early on, uh, the church that I was pastoring was meeting at another church, a Seventh-day Adventist church. We met on Sundays. They met on Saturdays. They had this elaborate sound system. And uh, right before I went up to speak, I forgot to turn my mic off and I went to the restroom. And uh, you just can imagine uh, the noises and the sounds that came out of that. And, and uh, I think I was e even singing in the restroom, and so it was, there was no win. There was just no win in that circumstance. Okay. <laughs> okay. In all seriousness, though, what's the hardest thing about being you, about being Pastor Dan, by pastoring this church? Uh, what's the hardest thing? Uh, I, I think it is every day knowing that I am under a microscope and that everything that I do is evaluated. And I, so I, I have to be genuine. I have to, my, you know, I am not perfect. I, I'm, I am a redeemed sinner just like you. And, uh, but there is a sense in which there's a pedestal that I'm put on oftentimes uh, that is nearly impossible to live to. And uh, so that probably is the hardest thing. And the, 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 I think probably even more than that, now that I think about it, is the idea you know, what's the hardest thing for me is when I watch 
when I watch people walk away from the Lord that I've invested in and spend time with and, and they, just, they, they just choose the world again. That, I think that is difficult. What are some practical things we can do to overcome fear of people who don't look like or think like us? That's an interesting thing. I, I don't think there's, I think there, there's one thing. And that one thing is, is that the one thing that overcomes fear is relationship. And you, there's no way uh, that when you jump into a sincere relationship with someone and you see their heart, I think all that, I don't think you can maintain that fear. I think when you see someone's heart, you can really overcome all those insecurities that you have. A lot of those things come from ourselves and so it's insecurity in our own life. And I, I just think that you reckon on the power of God, you trust the power of God, and you realize that relationship breaks down barriers. And it is really relationship and connection with people is what we're called to do. I understand that Jesus is the Son of God, but why is Jesus called the Son of Man? And that's, that's a term that comes out of the Old Covenant, Old, Old Testament. And I think, that, as I understand it, uh, I believe it is, it is an expression of, you know, Jesus is the God-man. I think it's an expression of, of his humanity. I think, I believe it comes out of the book of Daniel. And, um, and so I believe that it has a great expression of, uh, of the humanity of Christ. Okay, when we die, I've heard this question often, are we asleep for a while or are we in his presence right away? That, that's a question I get all the time as well. And I, I would say that the New Testament reveals to us that to be absent from the body, that's death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I believe that a, the minute a person takes their last breath as a believer, they enter, into, they, they enter into the presence of God and there remain with God for all eternity. Whatever that means, whatever God reveals, that's what I believe. And uh, I think what's dangerous is, is that when we take sections of Scripture, like in the Old Covenant, they would refer to death as sleep. And so sometimes we look at that and we go, okay, well, that must mean that we just go to sleep, but that's not, that's not the case as you look at the, what is called the progress of revelation as the New Testament unfolds itself, I believe that it reveals that to be absent from the body is to be, is to be present with the Lord. Okay, we've got this DNA thing, right? Culturally relevant, externally focused. One of them is kingdom-minded. And this person asked, what do you mean when you say we're kingdom-minded? If you come to Christmas Eve... <laughs> I'll explain that extensively to you at Christmas Eve. But let me give you the Reader's Digest version right now. I believe that the kingdom of God represents the rule of Christ on the planet. And that that began at the birth of Jesus. That's the inauguration. Uh, he was the king. And he, w he came into this world. And uh, I believe someday he will be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. But right now, today, it's his rule on the planet. And he rules today in a spiritual way. It is a, it is a kingdom ruled in, not in an overt way, but in a very secretive way. Not secretive, that's probably a bad word. But not in, not in a way that is visible necessarily. So the kingdom of God comes in simple forms today. But it's really Christ's rule in my life and in your life and in the world's today. Okay, so where was Jesus between his death and the resurrection? Where did he go? 
Well, we don't know exactly where he went. We know a couple places he went. He went to the place of the dead and proclaimed victory there. So he went to the heart of the earth. That's where, that's where the place of the dead was, and he proclaimed victory. And the Scripture says that he led captivity captive. I believe that's a phrase that literally means uh, he, you know, in the Old Covenant, um, we see that there was there, the place of the, the dead had two compartments, the righteous and the unrighteous. And so when he died, he went and took the righteous to the presence of God. And, uh, and then he came back and appeared to his disciples, and it's a glorious story. It is a glorious story. I read somewhere that they found a book by Mary. Do you think that's possible? I think anything is possible, but the answer, the question is, does it have authority? That's the real question. And so there were tons of councils, and, and there was a strict set of codes that they put all writings through. And there were a lot of writings that didn't make it, didn't make it into the Scripture. So is there a book of Mary? Quite possible. Did Mary write it? Who knows? But the reality is, is the early church didn't accept it as authoritative or it would have been in our canon today, our scriptures today. Okay. How do you defend the existence of God to an atheist who believes that God is scientifically unfounded? That's a great question. I'm probably not the the right person to ask that question to there's people that could probably answer that a lot better than me but here the reality is is that I believe that my belief in God isn't necessarily founded on the exactness of science although I believe that God is the God of science science is changing I mean you can you can look our, our understanding of science is changing science never changes but our understanding of science changes so what we believed 100 years ago isn't necessarily what we believe today. But the interesting thing is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I, I think that if you want to know the existence of God, that you have to look at things that are stable. And some of those things that I believe that are stable, and when I talk about instability, I'm talking about men's belief about science, not science itself. So what I think is stable is the fact that God is the God who writes history in advance. It's one of the reasons I believe. It's because God has taken history, recorded it thousands of years ago, and it happened exactly the way he said it was going to happen. That's one of the reasons I believe. Another reason I believe is that uh, I believe that as I look at the redemption of men, as I look at changed lives, as I look at my own life as a person who did not believe, who did, did not trust Christ, did, wasn't raised in the church, had an encounter with Jesus, and the truth is it changed my life forever. So I look at the transformation of lives, and uh, that's where I looked to really found my faith um, because I think what we, if Christ tarries, what we believe about science will has, have transformed because of deeper understanding of more scientific of more more accurate ways to measure things so i think that we have to be careful with saying that god isn't the god behind science i think what is true is that our our view of science has changed yeah that made me think about um just what's going on in the world and how people are changing and their views of god are changing and their openness to god are changing um, but I'm wondering what you think about humanity itself. Do you think that we're getting worse and worse and worse, more and more evil, and 
um, further and further from God, or has it always been that condition? I think it has always been that condition. We've always, from the foundation of, of the earth, when God placed Adam and Eve in a garden and they rebelled against God, um, I think from that day forward, sin began to, ran, to run rampant on the planet. I think you go through seasons of, of expressions of deep depravity, of deep senses of where people are really, you know, express their evilness. But I believe that the truth is, is that, is that it's always been there. At the, at, what's interesting though, at the end of the age, more evil will be revealed. In other words, men's heart will go, will, will go through a period where men's hearts are waxed, hardened. And uh, so, but it's always been there. We have, since the rebellion of man against God, the truth is, is that depravity has taken place and, and some, some people are able to manage that better than others. This last question kind of ties to that. How do you balance the natural desire to succeed and to win with humility and surrender? That, that is a great question. So I believe that victory comes from the Lord himself. So I believe that, that when I humble myself before God, he exalts me. So if I understand that correctly, then he come, Christ then becomes my all in all. He becomes my victory. And I don't have to worry about wins and losses in this life. God, because he is sovereign and powerful, will lead me exactly where I'm supposed to be. And my failures are really not failures at all. There are, there are times when God is taking me to a place of teaching me something that I could never learn in my, in my successes. So I believe that humility always wins, it never loses, and that it's never, ever wrong to humble yourself before God. So that's a great answer, but how do you get there? I mean, how do you as a human being get there? I think that's, I think it's a process over a long period of time. I don't think you start there. I didn't start there. I think God takes you through periods of time in your life where he teaches you the blessings of humility and you can watch God work in those places of humility. And I think that when, the more you experience Christ in humility, the more you hunger for that humility in your life. And so I don't think you just get there. Mm -hmm. I think it is a process that God takes you through. And I would say that I'm not there yet. Yeah. I would say that there's a lot more humility that God wants from my life to teach me how to surrender to him, to look to him for my victory. And, um, and, I, and I think that oftentimes selfish ambition that causes me to want to win just messes my life up. And I think you have to look at that as well. Yeah, for sure. Okay, this one you answered last Sunday. How do we know God's will for our life and if we're living out our calling or what we're called to do? How do we live on purpose? Yeah, I would say go back to last week's message. And uh, I think it comes down to the idea of, of uh, wanting to be a means. I want to be the means of God's glory. And if I take one step a day at just trying to be God's means, and I broke down kind of three or four areas in your life where that if you were to practice these things and learning to be God's tool in those things, that eventually God will just, re he, he just opens doors. And I, that's been my experience in life. Uh, it's, I, I think it's why I am the pastor of Grace Church is that, is that it was one step at a time, uh, just learning, learning to be, 
learning to be the means that God uses. And I think if I focus on that, I really honestly believe that uh, God puts puts you exactly where you're supposed to be at the right timing, uh, at the right place, and it is a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing when God does that. I think sometimes thinking about purpose frustrates people. I honestly do. I think that it frustrates people going, you know, how could I ever know God's purpose? And I, I just think take one day at a time and you think about, okay, God wants me to be a worshiper because by worshiping him, I'm exalting his name. I'm a means to exalting God's name. I don't think there's any better way to be living in God's purpose than that. I've heard you say often, too, that you don't have to figure out the whole plan. You just have to figure out what the next God step. wants you to do next. Yeah, it's the next step. So, yeah. that's good. That's good. Okay, well, this is coincidence. We're out of time, and we're out of questions. So, it worked out just right. Awesome. So, you were going to pray for us today? And sure, I'll pray. And uh, thanks for being here. Yeah. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you ate too much. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, I'll see you in the gym afterwards. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for just the opportunity we've had to um, open your word and think about you, God. And I pray that, God, in every way that you have been glorified today in Jesus' holy and powerful and awesome name. Amen.